Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back, listeners. This is Topic 3, the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, Part 1 of Series 4, The Treasures of Kansas City. Okay, so I just realized that I've been calling each topic an episode, but some topics have multiple episodes, Parts 1, 2, 3, etc. And uh, I realized that this can probably be confusing for some of you, especially... Um, the last topic, which was the Country Club Plaza, but part one was labeled as J.C. Nichols, and then part two of the Country Club Plaza was actually labeled Country Club Plaza part one, but it was part two. So, yeah, in order to avoid further confusion, I'm going to start calling each episode a topic, and then I'll break it down into the episode is part one or part two. Um... Speaking of which, I originally announced that this series would have four topics, the Western Auto Building, the Plaza, the Nelson Atkins Museum, and Union Station, and I hoped originally to have all four completed by May. That didn't happen, so then I wanted all four completed by June. Well, that didn't happen. It's now the end of June, and I haven't even started on Union Station. Um, It's summer. I've been getting out and about a lot. I've got some travel coming up. So I have decided to, oh, PSA, by the way, if you're traveling, you know, should be vaccinated first. If not, you should wear a mask. Actually, I read today the CDC is saying that even if you are vaccinated, you should wear your mask because we have this variant called the Delta variant. And Okay, we had the original strain, and it was bad, right? And then we had all these variants pop up because viruses mutate when they interact with different people. People interact with each other. And so then we had the alpha variant, and then a couple others. Now we have the delta variant. Alpha variant is 50% more contagious and deadlier than the original, and the delta is 50% more contagious and deadly than the alpha I don't know how this works, but to me, that sounds like it's 100% worse than the original. So, you know, I know that everyone's like, hey, I'm vaccinated, or hey, I'm not, but I don't care. You really should be. You should care. Um, But, you know, just even if you are vaccinated, please continue to take precautions. Okay, anyway, so getting back on track. So, because it's summer and I've got all this other stuff going on, I have decided not to include Union Station in this series. My next series is going to be all about trains, so it will feature Union Station heavily. Uh, I'm sorry about the wait, but just bear with me a little longer on that one. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. I'm so glad you decided to join us. After this episode, I hope you will go back to listen to topics one and two, which is the Western Auto and Kutcher Plaza, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, 
part one of the of Country Club Plaza is labeled J.C. Nichols, so make sure you listen to that one first. Um, this topic is going to follow the same format as the Country Club Plaza with part one, focusing on the biographies of Mary Atkins and William Raquel Nelson, for whom the museum is named. All right, let's dig in. Here we go. Part one, subtitle, I want a museum. Correction, I want an art museum. All right, so first up is Mary Atkins, born October 22nd, 1836 in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, sorry, I almost said Connecticut, um, Kentucky, to John Jefferson uh, Ginger, okay, so his, like, his nickname is Ginger, that's not his middle name, uh, McAfee, to Julia in Hackley, McAfee, that's a little bit of a tongue twister, Hackley McAfee. Um, her parents had also been born in Kentucky. They probably lived there their whole lives. They wed on November 11th, 1836. And I did not see a record of a previous marriage for Julia. Um, so I don't know why they married after their daughter's birth. Could be anything. But just note, they did get married after she was born. It's, it's like a month, not even a month, it's like three weeks after she was born. Anyways, um, sadly, Julia died on January 2nd, 1846, so Mary was only 10 at that time. Now, Daddy-O remarried to Mary Jane Stagg on December 13th, 1847. She then had three half-siblings, Medora McAfee Cunningham, Julia McAfee Smith, and Minnie McAfee Bunton. And I have to say, I think it would be super awkward for everyone involved, but most especially in this case for Mary, if you name your child with your new wife after your first wife, who is now dead. I mean, she, she, one of her sisters is named Julia. That's the name of her mom. Maybe it's just me. I think that's super awkward. Mary became a teacher in 1878 and married James Burris Atkins, son of Yelvington. I think I said that right. Um, extra points for him for having such a unique name. Very unique. Actually, it looks pretty cool spelled out, too. Um, and her his mom was Elizabeth Massey Atkins. Um, she actually would have been like 40 or 41 at this time. She was described as, quote, a slender, angular-looking, spinsterous-type woman, but had large eyes that dominated her face and made her nice-looking, a dry humor, a quaint way of saying things, and a frequent smile which never broke out into laughter, end quote. Other than the spinster comment, which I think is rather rude, um, I think that description is pretty accurate looking at her portrait. She is slender. She does look like she has large eyes. Not, not like bug eyes, not creepy, big, big eyes, but they're not tiny ones. So, yeah, just look at her portrait because I kind of butchered that description trying to, to further describe it to y'all. Anyways, Mr. Atkins was born on January 12th, 1830 in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and he was into real estate. Must have been a great job back then, because it seems like everybody was into real estate. 
According to museum historian Christy Wolferman, James married Frances Hackley in 1848. Mary's mother's maiden name was Hackley, relation unknown. Um, and on her deathbed in 1858, quote, he promised his wife Frances that he would never marry again, end quote. <laughs> yeah, right. Every time someone promises that, you know they're going to break the promise. Anyway, he moved to Kansas City in 65 and became a miller, and then he started writing back home. I guess he and Mary were uh, already writing to each other at that time, and so he wrote to her, and he's like, why don't you move to Kansas City and marry me? She's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, and so that's how that happened. They lived downtown at 903 McGee Street. In addition to his milling business, he also did some more real estate speculation, um, made a ton of money, ton of money, but they lived really, really simply. They didn't have any children, so not much in expenses. And when he died on April 13th, 1886, uh, 1886, sorry, 1886, he left her $250,000. He's buried in Elmwood Cemetery. And um, this means they only had nine years together, which is really sad because uh, she lives quite a long time after his death. And she waited so long to marry him in the first place. And it just sucks they didn't have more time together. After James's death, she moved in with Sarah Jenkins, um, who was also a widow. And Sarah's husband, Andrew, had been really good friends and business partner with James. So she and Sarah, you know, were also friends. Um... Also living with Sarah at the time was Sarah's son, Paul, and his wife. She didn't stay with them for very long before she moved in with some other friends, um, a Judge Charles Clark and his wife. I don't know why she moved out, if it was because of the younger couple living there or what. Didn't say. Uh, soon after she moved in with the judge, she wrote to James's niece, Lizzie, who she had always been rather close to, and asked her to move to Kansas City. And Lizzie's like, yeah, this is good. And Lizzie's parents are like, yeah, this is good. That would never have happened to me as a child. Um, and they all, she moved in with her and they all lived together with the judge. Um, Lizzie's full name is Elizabeth Salmon. She attended Central High School. I don't know the details of this next bit of the story. Um, and the highlights have a slight cringe element to them that I'm trying to ignore, so please try to ignore them with me. But Lizzie met her husband, Alfred Frederick uh, Jacquemont. I think I'm saying that right. Um, he's Swiss, so it's like a Frenchish name. Anyways, um, he taught at Central. He taught languages courses. And after she graduated, like, I think she took a course or two with him, and then she graduated, and then she took some more courses from him. And that's when they fell in love, and they got married April 19th, 1894. So, you see what I mean? Slight cringe element there if he was her teacher previously. Um, Mary's wedding gift to her niece is super nice, though. She's very generous. She gave her $50,000. Um, Mary traveled a lot after James died as well. Um, a lot of solo travel, too. So, go girl. I really wanted to, to get into solo travel myself. I've inadvertently solo traveled twice. I want to purposely solo travel. But that will be after the world is no longer trying to kill itself with COVID. 
Anyways, uh, she went to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. If I had a time machine and I could go back in time, Chicago World's Fair is 100% on my top 10 list. Um, alongside Library of Alexandria and, I don't know, other major historical stuff that I don't have specifically named, except for those two. I have those two specifics. Anyways, um, there was this exhibit at Chicago World's Fair, which is why I brought this up, um, called The White City. Okay, so basically this was like a 3D, like full-scale, interactive model of the City Beautiful movement, which I talked about in previous episodes. Remember, it's not just a phenomenon here in Kansas City. It's happening all across America. Hell, it might have even happened in Europe, too. It was just, it was in the zeitgeist of the time. It was in the air. Everybody had it. Um, for those of you who skipped the pleasant episode and don't know what I'm referring to, I will be nice, and I will give you a brief explanation here. Um, basically, it's the idea that a city doesn't need to be purely functional. That actually, it's better for the city and the citizens if there are aesthetic qualities to it as well. It increases visitation and commerce and um, morale. That's not like, oh, I feel better morale. That's like good versus evil morale. So after seeing the White City up in Chicago, Mary is totally Team CB, Team City Beautiful Movement. And in 1897, at age 60, Mary Atkins not only learned French, but she traveled to Europe for the first time. She visited Fr France and Switzerland. Then she went again in 1900, 1902, and 1903. Now, Lizzie and Fred moved to Geneva in 1902. That's where his family was from, and he still had a bunch of family there. Um, but Mary just fell in love with the culture and the architecture and the art when she was over there. I think especially the art and the architecture. Overall, she kept a really quiet life, kept to herself. She only had a few very close friends. Um, I'm debating whether or not how she would do if she was alive now during quarantine. On the one hand, living such a simple life, I'm like, she wouldn't do too bad. And on the other, traveling to Europe every year, I think she would suffer a bit. <laughs> um, but she died October 13th, 1911. And like I said, she, she only had a really couple of really close friends. And even they were surprised um, at, after her death. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but everyone else, people who didn't know her, were like, oh, we really want to know more about her. And uh, the newspapers were writing all kinds of articles about her biographies and such. Because, um, I'm paraphrasing her obituary here, um, wealthy widow leaves city $300,000 to build our museum. She left all this money for the art museum, and all of her friends are like, Whoa, we had no idea you had that much money. Whoa, we had no idea you liked art. She also left money for her half-sisters and their families, which totaled altogether um, 50000 And then a couple of thousand dollars to various friends and family um, cousins. 
and then $100,000 to Linwood Christian Church on behalf of the Jenkins family, her friends. They had attended that church. $25,000 to her own church. And then $45,000 to various charities, including an orphanage and a home for aged women. So, that's a shit ton of money. Excuse my French. That is a lot of money. And, like I said, she's just extremely generous. I mean, look at that. Must have been very, very savvy, because her husband only left her a fraction of that money. And she didn't work, so she must have invested it in shit. Really a woman. Sounds like she would have been very cool to meet. Totally would have gone to France with her. Alright. Moving on. That's a terrible segue. Moving on. William Rockhill Nelson was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana on March 7th, 1841 to Isaac DeGroff Nelson and Elizabeth Rockhill Nelson. His father was born July 2nd, 1810 in Poughkeepsie, New York. And he died March 24th, 1891 in Fort Wayne. Excuse me. Uh, his dad was a horticulturalist. It's a little bit of a tongue twister for me. Um, and he was well known in his community for beautiful landscaping at his house and his greenhouse. He had this amazing greenhouse, apparently. And he was very active within his community. He served as the state house commissioner and was the first president of the Linden Cemetery, which apparently was a really big deal. Um, on his mother, you know, I could only find birth and death years. She was born in 1817, and she died in 1889. Uh, except for, you know, the women that really stand out, like Mary, that is typical, which sucks. Um, William... R. William had been named for his maternal grandfather, and he was the second born of four siblings. The Missouri Encyclopedia said he had five siblings, but I couldn't find any other sources that mentioned a fifth, so either that fact is incorrect, or maybe the fifth was like a miscarriage, or stillborn, or only lived to the age of three, or something like that, you know? Uh, so his siblings were Amos DeGroff Nelson, Theodosia Nelson Bond, and Eva Rebecca Nelson. Oh, I'm missing one. Oh, second born of four. Okay, so there's only four kids. Got you. Um, Nelson did a lot of other stuff um, that, honestly, him alone could be two full episodes. So this is the very condensed version, and I will most likely do a more in-depth one at another point. He attended the Notre Dame University after high school, but he never earned a degree because he left after only two years. He became a court clerk, and he passed the bar in 1860. He did not fight in the Civil War, but he continued to practice law and started a real estate business during the Civil War. I... Can't decide if starting a real estate business during a civil war is absolutely brilliant or absolutely idiotic, but there you go. After the war, he started working for his grandfather building houses, and he decided that he loved the planning part, but he hated actually doing the building himself. That comes into play much later in life. Uh, he then got involved in politics, which also plays a major role in his future life. Um... 
And er, that was a spoiler because that's one of the details that I'm going to leave out for the future. Um, there's a very specific reason for that, which I will tell you when I tell you about it. That was a firecracker. Um, that's That was a really big boom. Actually, that's not a firecracker. It's much bigger. Anyways, so... Um, something I did not mention about Papa was that Isaac owned the newspaper called Fort Wayne Centennial. So in 1879, William's various business ventures all suffered major, major financial loss at the same time. And he lost everything he owned except for the newspaper. His father had left it to him. So this became his focus for the next year. He and his business partner, Samuel E. Morse, decided that there would be better, um, bigger, and more financial opportunities if they moved further west. So they sold the paper, they packed up, moved to Kansas City in 1880, and they started the Evening Star. A year later, Morse sold his half of the business to Nelson. So this newspaper became the Kansas City Star. And I couldn't find... A name change anywhere, um, like it said when it had changed from Evening Star to Kansas City Star. I finally found a source that said that the full name of the newspaper was the Kansas City Evening Star. So I guess after a couple of years, they just dropped the evening part, and we have the KC Star, which is, of course, everybody in Kansas City knows it. Um, and... This is why I said I won't cover the politics part, because when I do the newspaper and talk about him some more, then we'll include that. Okay, Nelson married Ida Houston on November 29th, 1881. Ida was the daughter of Robert Houston, a doctor, and Eliza Pierce Houston. She was born in South Charleston, Ohio on March 17th, 1853. Ida had three siblings, um, Eliza Houston Foos, Theodore Houston, and Laura Houston Morden, and a half-sibling, Milton Houston. Together, William and Ida had one daughter, Laura Rockhill Nelson Kirkwood. And like Mary and the subject of a previous show, J.C. Nichols, Wilson is also Team CB, Team Sid Beautiful. He is so there. I think he was drawn in philosophy in large part because of his father. Because, you know, his dad was all about the landscaping. And a lot of the city beautiful is is landscaping, essentially. Um, so if you live in Kansas City, especially if you live near UMKC, you know that we have Rock Hill Road, which is actually named for William Rock Hill Nelson. And that's because he paid for it to be built with his own money. We also have the Rock Hill District, which William designed himself in the early 1900s. According to the Missouri Encyclopedia, quote, A developer of real estate, he built a relationship with J.C. Nichols and supported Nichols' approach to city planning. Like Nichols, Nelson imposed racially restrictive covenants to ensure segregated housing. And the farm, um, which is called Sninabar, S-N-I dash a dash B A R. Uh, Irwin became the managing editor of the Star. So this farm is thirty miles outside of Kansas City. It's one thousand seven hundred and fifty acres, and they bred shorthorn cattle. 
So Nelson might have started the farm, but from what I read, it sounds like Laura was the one that really made it successful, um, was just an excellent manager of it. In 1917, she resigned from her official position with the Red Cross and started helping out uh, her husband at the Star. Then Mama dies in 21, and she's now managing her father's real estate all alone. Um, in her will, Ida, Laura's mom, in her will, she had named Kirkwood and Frank Rozell, or Rosel? I'm not sure how to pronounce that, actually. R-O-Z-Z-E-L-L-E. Um, fellow Kansas Cityans are probably yelling it at me. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Um, he was a longtime family friend and the family attorney. So she had named her son-in-law and the attorney as the trustees of her own estate. And Rozelle, 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 Ugh. let's go with Rozelle. Um, he'll, he'll get a little bit more in the next episode. But, um, Laura, you know, I think she was kind of devastated actually from her mother's loss. Uh, from the loss of her mother. Sounds like they were rather close. Um, she died on February 27th, 1926. Findagrave.com says that she died alone in a hotel room. But Christy Wolferman says that she was visiting Irwin's brother um, and had actually traveled to Baltimore to have an eye surgery. And that... Quote, her obituary suggested that she had been ill the month before, but did not mention that she may also have been suffering from alcoholism from some, for some time. Whether her excessive drinking contributed to Laura's premature death has not been determined. End quote. Maybe not, but I'm definitely leaning towards it being a contributing factor. So, like I said, she and Irwin never had any children. So that $1 million each that Nelson had left for their children goes back into the Nelson Trust. So it gets bigger. Uh, not to mention, she and her mama had been very good stewards of that money, so the pot has already grown. Laura left $60,000 to Irwin and named him the executor of her estate, which means he is handling William's estate and Ida's estate and her estate. There's a lot on his plate. Um, as executor of his wife's estate, he was responsible for creating a boys' choir at the Grace and Holy Trinity Church and managing a fund to, quote, beautify the Nelson Memorial Chapel at Mount Washington Cemetery, end quote. The Nelsons and eventually Kirkwood are all buried at Mount Washington. Quote, Laura committed the rest of her considerable estate to bring in the R William Rockhill Nelson Gallery of Art closer to reality. She gave her husband, and in the event of his death, Fred C. Vincent, John E. Wilson, and the New England National Bank and Trust Company, the right as he, or they, saw fit to convert any or all of her property into cash for the purpose of providing, quote, a site for or the cost of construction of a building in Kansas City, Missouri, to bear the name William Rockhill Nelson, followed by the words, Gallery of Art, end quote. The trustees could use any of their remaining funds to purchase works of art, end quote. So Irwin actually died really shortly after his wife on August 29th, 1927, in Saratoga Springs, New York. 
In his will, he left money to 10 different family members, um, siblings, nieces, and nephews, maybe a cousin or two. Then after that was paid, 2500 wait, let me try that again. $250,000 would go to the construction of the museum, which was supposed to have been built after Nelson died 12 years ago. And there's, it's not been built yet. Anything that was left was to be used to purchase art. That is the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining me today as we explored the lives of Mary Atkins, William Rockhill Nelson, Laura Cookward, and Erwin Kirkwood. This story will continue in part two, obviously. Y'all, I have the best, the very best source to recommend for this episode. Y'all ready for this? I visited the Nelson most recently in January. I know it's been like six months, but... Um, I went with my friend Ethan. I don't know uh, when you'll listen to this, but hi, Ethan. Um, it's kind of become a tradition that we visit the museum every time he's in town, which is usually around December or January. And I knew then that I would cover this topic. And so I had already been looking around, gathering source material. And I stopped in the gift shop and I found the ultimate source. The Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, A History by Christy Wolferman. Um, the first edition was published in 1993, but the newest edition, which is only the second edition, but whatever, was published in 2020. And it's uh, more up to date, and it's got more in it, and it's just awesome. Like, she's got some photos in there, and her writing is really simple to follow. It's well-organized. It's delightful. So highly, highly, highly recommend. Can I recommend this book enough to you? It is thick. Don't let that intimidate you. Other sources are pendergrastkc.org and findagrave.com, as always. Um, I also use the Missouri Encyclopedia a little bit. For merchandise, please visit my store. That's zazzle.com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. Um, I just finished readying the t-shirts and the hats. So those are now available in addition to the coffee mugs, magnets, buttons. Uh, I think there's a beer glass. Yeah, there is still a beer glass. Um, right now, everything is 15% off. If you use the promo code, sorry, had to look it up. Promo code ZCreateToday, all one word. Make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I am HomegrownKC on all of those. You can also visit my website for additional information, uh, links to some of the sources that I cite, some photographs. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. Yes, I am still really behind. I will eventually... Catch up, and there will be a page for all the episodes. I promise. I promise. I promise. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, episode suggestions, etc., you can email me at homegrownkc.podcast at gmail.com. That's on my website and on my Facebook page. It's uh, probably on my Twitter and Instagram pages as well. Uh, lastly, you can check me out on Audia. That's A-U-D-E-A. Um, it is a 
audio platform. It's basically like YouTube, except that instead of a video, you have an audio file. You can use the code zero capital E capital F capital Y one capital A to create a free profile. Then just search homegrown KC and subscribe to the show. And then you can listen there. I am also available on audible and Amazon podcast now, which is exciting. I hope you will become a supporter of the show. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the regular show, If you become a supporter, you receive access to exclusive interviews with other historians in the KC area. A shout out here on the show. Thank you, Bjorn, for your support. And you get an item from the store valued at $5 a month. Um, Sorry, $5 or less. To become a supporter, it's only $5 a month. So there you go. Um, If you can't or don't want to become a monthly supporter, you can give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. But if you want to support me every month, I really hope you do. You can do that at patreon.com slash homegrownkc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Thanks goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show and to local libraries. Thanks for listening. seem to